Welcome back to the Chawton House podcast with me, Lizzie Frisbee. If this is your first time tuning in, then how do you do? This is the podcast series all about the Great House based in the tiny Hampshire village of Chawton. It was once home to Edward Austen Knight, brother of world-famous writer best known for her novel Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. With so much going on all year round, I want to keep you informed of what is going on, chatting to curators, guest speakers, volunteers, gardeners and more. This episode is extremely special as we are joined by Caroline Jane Knight. Caroline is Jane Austen's fifth great-niece, the last of Jane's descendants to grow up in the Great House, living there from birth until the age of 17. She later went on to establish the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation and wrote a book, Jane and Me, My Austen Heritage, published in 2017, in which she recounts her life journey so far. Please do forgive us for any external noises of dogs barking, etc., as we had to record this episode from our homes on opposite sides of the world. I hope you enjoy listening. Good morning, everyone, or good evening to Caroline Jane Knight, who's over in Australia, as it is 8.30 here in England right now, but it is 5.30 or coming up for 5.30 in the evening, yes, here in Australia. <laughs> and how are you doing? How's your day been? Yeah, very good, thank you. Very well. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. It's the earliest I've been up in a while, good. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll be talking to you today about your life growing up in Chawton House, mainly, because I'm sure you've got so much to share with us. And it must be absolutely fascinating because you lived in Chawton until the age of 17 from when you were born. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yes, I actually moved out, yes, just before my 18th birthday. Right. Yes. Cool. Before we go any further, so yeah, I probably apologise if uh, on either end, if uh, either of us do hear dogs barking, then I do apologise because I think we both have dogs <laughs> um, yes. in the house. But nonetheless, let's get started. So, did it feel special or sort of privileged, or was it completely normal for you growing up in the great house as a child? I think it was probably both in different ways. I mean, of course. It's all I knew. Mm. So there were very many ways in which, of course, you just accept what you know, don't you? Yeah. You know, all children do. I mean, I think we're very, you know, of course they do. Children absolutely accept what, what, you know, the normality of their day-to-day experience. But at the same time, the family fortune had run out decades before I was born. Mm. So although we sort of had this amazing house, obviously, I mean, Chawton House is obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's just beautiful and, a, and yeah. an absolutely wonderful home to live in. Um, we didn't interact with other people that lived in properties like that. We didn't have the money to be going to, you know, to, you know we weren't having expensive holidays or going to the best balls or, or any of that sort of stuff. So everyone else that I was interacting with were, you know, people that lived in Chawton, people that lived in Alton, people I went to school with, you know, people that didn't live in a place like Chawton. So, of course, I was very aware that I lived somewhere very, very different from everyone else I knew. Yeah. Um, and the privilege of the heritage and the privilege of growing up in 400 years of my own history with, you know, and, and that is an incredible cocoon of of safety when you're a child I mean that that, you know the sense of belonging the sense of knowing who you are and where you come from was so strong that that was you know I I knew what a privilege that was Um, and of course you know of course living with an extended family as a child is a massive um, advantage and 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 great fun and I spent so much time with granny and and cousin Fiona who lived on the top floor and you know, that that also was something that I knew was something very special. How many Um, of your family members were you living with? So we all actually had our own parts of the house. We didn't sort of all live together. So um, my grandparents and my uncle Robert lived together in what we would consider, I guess, to be the main parts of the house. So that's the Great Hall, Mm -hmm. um, what I'd know as the study, but I guess would be... Um, you know the office at the front of the house okay. um, you know that the, what you know is the lower reading room which is the library to me and the exhibition rooms which were bedrooms um, when we lived there so that sort of main you know part of the house was lived in by my grandparents as I say right. um, my family we lived in the north wing so we had what is now the dining room which was our sitting room uh-huh. um, 
There's now opposite the dining room, there's the old smoking room, um, which I think you now use for lunches. And that was my parents' bedroom. And then my brother had the blue room upstairs as his bedroom. Um, and there was, when we lived there, there was actually another wing to the house. The, the, on that north wing, there was another extension to the house, which was removed in the uh, renovations in the 1990s. And it was actually in that extension um, that was our kitchen and my bedroom was off the kitchen in the extension. So we lived there and that's my parents, my brother and I. And then on the very top floor, which is now where the offices, um, you know, where your offices are. Yeah. Um, I had an aunt and uncle and they had three children who lived up there. Oh. So we had, which was lovely. So poor, I mean, the bo you know, the, the boys were away at school during term time. Um, but we all sort of had, you know, I had a cousin upstairs who was, who was only, you know, a year and a half, two years older than me. Paul had a cousin upstairs who was the same age as him. So that was really nice that lovely. we had that sort of company in the house. So as well as the sort of, I guess, three branches of the family, if you like, there are also other parts of the house, um, I, I, I suppose, you know, bits that the family weren't using anymore, that had actually been sort of converted into little self-contained apartments. And oh, from memory, there was probably three of them. Um, so they were tenanted and they were tenanted, I think, I mean, we didn't really talk about things like money in yeah. those days um, but I think that they were tenanted literally to bring some income in as I said the sort of you know the fortune had run out a long time ago um, mm. so obviously doing things like like um, get, you know getting some rent for a bit of unused parts of the house obviously made sense um, so there yeah. was as I said about you know about three tenanted parts as well and there was you know a few tenants along the way that I used to get on with really well there was a young couple that had a baby that I used to visit a lot Aww. so you know it was lovely actually in a yeah. way we had the privacy of actually having our own of the house so of course with my mum and dad and my brother we sat as a family and had dinner every night as any family would and had that sort of absolute normality but we literally in the same house had cousins and grandparents and different people to talk to and and it was yeah. great it sounds like a very big sort of community feel then yes the absolutely and, the and i think and and i felt i mean of course i wouldn't have wandered into either my cousins on the top floor without, you know what I mean, that was obviously their private quarters mm. or the tenants' quarters, but, but certainly the rest of the house and our private quarters and my grandparents and all the main bits of the house and the tapestry gallery and the, and the, and the cellars and the attics and, I mean, all of that I, I, I just used as my own. I mean, we, we just, you know, as children, one day we'd be playing in the old kitchen, which is obviously now the, um, the tea room, yeah. um, and we might be, I don't know, looking through some boxes of old war medals that were you know 40 50 years old whatever they were and you know and the next day we'd be up in the attics looking through chests of old parchments and and old maps and old documents wow. and i mean it was just you know as children it, it honestly it was it was you know there were different adventures to be had every day at children. Yeah. i wanted to ask actually which room or part of the house or the grounds would you say were your favorite to play in as a child that's a good question. I think probably the attics because there was lots of, I mean, just as there is now, I mean, in my home, you know, up in my attic, there's a couple of boxes, you know, that I probably brought to this house when we moved in that I had very good intentions of cleaning out at some point. And, you know, 10 years later, they're still in the attic. Um, and you know, we'd been at Chawton for a very long time. So our attic just had quite a few boxes in it. Yeah. Um, and those boxes, you know, as I said, for children were a sort of treasure trove. Um, there were, I mean, it's a shame now that we didn't, I mean, as an adult, I look back and think it's a shame that we didn't actually really know necessarily what we were playing with. Because I remember that there were old clothes and old shoes. And I mean old shoes that now I think were, you know, they were silk either from the sort of beginning of the 20th century Wow. Um, or maybe even before, who knows? Mm. Um, but as I said, there was a sort of treasure trove of clothes and, and, and documents and books and, and all sorts up there, and, and, and that was fun. I tell you what also was fun about the attics is when I was um, very young, so probably, probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that, 
CB radios, which you probably got no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> CB radios were really popular, and right. my brother Paul put a CB radio up in the attic, so that's where the controller was, and an aerial on the roof. And because we were so high up, we could actually speak to people in the Isle of Wight. We could get that far. Wow! Um, so it was only you know you were only on a you know very very simple radio contraption talking about absolutely nothing with complete strangers. Um, <laughs> but that was that was quite fun. That was quite fun. We thought that was terribly terribly clever. Fab. And whereabouts was the best hiding place as a child? Because surely I'm guessing you played games. I think you mentioned in your book that you wrote about um, playing sardines around the house or hide and seek kind of games. Yes. And we used to play, we especially used to play sardines when um, Richard Knight, who I'm sure you know, who's obviously the current owner of Chalton House, my uncle Richard. So he and his family um were actually in uh Sirencester or, or that sort of area um that's where they lived but they used to come to Chawton House at least once a year um um to to to, to obviously see the family mm. which was lovely and uh Richard's got three children which again you know a couple of years older um, than us but you know same sort of ages and it was when they came that we used to play sardines a lot um and uh, to be quite the only play I mean the, the house does have a couple of sort of secret little um hidey holes in it um <laughs> but the the place I actually remember hiding the most was actually up in that top part, in the very, very top of the house, I said, where the offices are now, where my, where my cousins uh, lived up there. Um, and there were, you know, all the wardrobes in the house were massive sort of oak stand, you know, freestanding wardrobes, the sort of thing that you'd expect in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I was you know, about to that say, sort of that's the kind of image. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And hiding in the wardrobes was was uh, was, was very much, as I said, when I think about that, I just think of hiding in wardrobes. Um, yes. <laughs> you didn't find Narnia there. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Which is probably partly because I never had the um, patience because, you know, I can stand still and do nothing for about four minutes <laughs> before I get impatient. So. So it wasn't the game so for I you all the time. Chance. <laughs> <laughs> and what about uh, playing around in the grounds? Because you must have had a nice, you obviously have the ward gardens and then you sort of have the fields around as well. What was your favourite part of the outdoors of Chawton? So yes, absolutely. And it, it's because obviously when we lived there, the house was not as well kept as it is now. We didn't have the money for staff, so every bit of garden tending was being done by my dad and Uncle Robert and, you know, people that lived at the house. And that, of course, um, also without, you know, without a budget, that meant that things, as I said, were just not as well manicured, I suppose, as they are now. But in a way, there was something, there was something magical about that as a kid. I mean, there was something just magical about you know that bit of the woods where if you if you sort of you know peeled back that layer of undergrowth you'd find some amazing statue mm. or you'd find you know a, 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 an amazing bit of art sort of set into a wall somewhere and they're obviously all there now and they're all beautifully you know on display and easy to see but it yeah. wasn't quite the same when we were there it was just a little bit more overgrown than it is now and as I okay. said there was actually something amazingly magical about that as a child that there was all this sort of discovery to be had in the woods and and, and those sorts of things. Mm. Was it an absolutely favourite time? I mean, favourite time and favourite place is, you know, probably about, I think, March, April time is when the bluebells come out. Oh, um, yes. And, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the woods that are on the opposite side of the lawns from the house are just full of bluebells. Um, and, and the walk through there is exceptionally nice. Yeah, but absolutely beautiful. It must have been a bit like the secret garden. Absolutely, and you mentioned the wall garden at the top, um, and that's exactly what that was. It was a secret garden. You have to know that there is, it's, you know, yes, that there's something worth walking up to the, up to the top for. And again, when we lived there, the entrance to it just had a little bit more foliage around it. It was a little bit more overgrown. It was a little bit more mysterious in, in, in a way because of mm. that. And as you said, it literally was like a secret garden. It was magical. Um, and my parents actually used that walled garden um, to grow fruit and veg. Oh. Um, um, so it was literally, you know, yes, it was it was an allotment or, a, you know, vegetable garden um, in there. So we used to spend lots of time up there in the summer. Um, Lovely. And you can use it for the cooking. Absolutely. Well, it's literally what it's for. And then it's sort of harvest time and sort of 
I don't know, I mean, obviously for different things, but, but sort of August, September time, there'd be days and days of beans being picked and chopped and blanched and frozen and put in massive freezers. And we used to have massive freezers actually in the old kitchen, oh, um, okay. which I said is obviously now the, the, the house tea room, but there were massive freezers in there. So Granny had a big freezer in there, and my parents had a big freezer in there, and, and, and Penny and Dougie, my aunt and uncle who lived on the top floor, they had a big freezer in there. Um, and all of us would, would, would yes, the, the, the veg would go in there, the fruit would go in there for, for the winter. Um, sorry, to obviously, yes, preserve it. Um, and things like apples, though. There's an apple store at the back of the house. Okay. So when the orchard, because there's also uh, fruit trees in the walled garden, when those fruit trees, um, as I said, when the apples are ready and things, um, they'd be put in the apple store and if you sort of you know you, you lay them out so they don't touch each other and then they're sort of in the dark and they last for months like that um, so we were still utilizing you know some of the um, facilities that the house you know has has yeah fan fantastic and so you've mentioned sort of playing with your younger cousins and more your family sort of your age but what was your relationship like with your grandparents because I know you live with your grandmother Elizabeth Knight and then grandfather Edward Knight III who was the squire of Chawton what was your relationship like with them did you see them a lot yeah so I I absolutely would have seen them every every day every day um and granny was I mean obviously by the time I was born they were well into their 60s and by that point yeah, by that point, it probably settled into, you know, the routine that they were going to sort of see through for the rest of their years, if you know what I mean. Mm. They sort of settled into a, a very much a retired sort of routine. Yeah. Um, so my grandfather, who we know as Bapops, um, Bapops spent most of his days, he would be sitting in the library, which is what you know as the lower reading room. But um, as I said, we call that the library. And my grandparents use that as a sitting room. And there was a way in which the library was just the heart of the house. For me, it was the heart of the house. Obviously, because my grandparents used it as a sitting room, and of course, as you said, my grandfather was the squire. I mean, to hit to me, he was he was the king um, <laughs> of everything. Um, and you know, so it was obviously an important room because of that. But it was also the room where the Knight family collection, you know, the books were. So the sort of the family collection that have been put together over hundreds of years. And and so it's also where all our ancestors were somehow because of, right. you know, of course, the, the books, that's where what they put in and, and, and the books have book plates in them. And that gives you a clue as to who bought that book. And and that's just such a lovely sort of, you know, connection, I think, to, to ancestors, mm. which for me was more exciting than portraits was, was understanding, as I said, or looking at, um, you know, some of the choices, uh, choices of books. Um, but my grandfather, Edward, by the time I was born, had become, you know, a very private man and was largely reclusive, I suppose you'd say. Um, and I actually had almost no relationship with him at all. Um, I don't have any recollection of us ever having a conversation um, mm. or him sort of talking to me very much um, until I was 17 and he was... Um, not well and dad came and suggested that I go and have a chat with him in his bedroom um, and I you know was very aware that of the significance of that request um, and went and had my one and only conversation with him which didn't last very long perfect you know very nice um, and I you know um, yeah anyway so that was in his bedroom on the first floor just outside the exhibition room actually was his bedroom the, the sort of the small room there um, so we didn't really have much of a relationship at all. Granny, on the other hand, Granny was a very formidable woman. Um, <laughs> she was a woman that she really was. I mean, you know, she she was a woman that you'd have to be pretty brave to trifle with Granny. Really? I can tell you. I mean, really, um, but not not actually because she was not actually because she was that fierce. She just had this air about her that just said, you know, if I say that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. I mean, she just had this air about her that I don't even mean bossy. I just mean self-assured. Um, and she when she said things, she just said them in a way that, that to me as a child was not open for debate or question. And as I said, I don't actually mean that in a, as I said, she wasn't a tyrant. I loved her. I loved spending time with her. I just mean she was that self-assured yeah. and that sort of confident or certainly as to me as a child, that's how she came across. Mm. With natural and authority. I also saw, 
yeah absolutely absolutely just had that natural authority and whilst of course this is through the eyes of a child which which of course isn't necessarily at all representative of the reality of things I don't know but it certainly from where from what I could you know from my understanding of things it was actually granny that was the you know the busy one who was keeping things going in the house so so it was granny that was dealing with the tenants um it was granny you know she ran a tea room from the great hall um which i think would have been to earn some money um mm. but i think it was also because she enjoyed it she was a fantastic cook i mean absolutely fantastic she had been um cordon bleu trained in paris when she was young oh, wow. um, and it was you know she really was my grandmother was an extraordinary cook so i spent hours with her um you know on a saturday morning and sunday morning baking we used to do the cricket teas for the for, for the local uh, cricket team in chawton and then we'd be baking for the tea room um so she'd be running the tea room but granny would also be the one you know if there were repairs on the house that needed doing she'd be organizing that with my dad or whatever you know they were going to do so as i said she was a woman who was always on the go and to me was absolutely invincible as I said, she just had this extraordinary sort of, as you said, air of, or just authority and capability about her. And, you know, there was always something to organise because there was also lots of public events that happened at the house. So every year there'd be the FATE, there'd be the Horticultural Show, there'd be the Jane Austen Society of the UK, their AGMs there every every July. Um, right. The Christmas Carol, you know, the tea service after the Christmas Carol service is, is at the house. Um, so there was also, you know, those sorts of things take a lot of organisation, there's a lot of people to talk to, there's a lot going on all the time and as I said, Granny was the one that um, was very much sort of, um, seemed to be the one organising that and I just used to love joining in and, and just as I said, used to help with all sorts of things, as did my mum and dad, I mean it was it was very much a, you know, a family, a family um, effort to get yeah. that sort of thing done but as I said, Granny just was also, one of the things I found so remarkable about her was the fact that certainly to me, she just never complained she never spoke a bad word about anybody, zero gossip. She just, I mean, as I said, was, was just remarkable, really, I think. Um, but in a way, which is really strange, I spent a lot of time with Granny and I think knew her, I think my brother and I, Paul and I, probably knew Granny or, or were as close to Granny as anybody. Um, and obviously there would be other family members as well, but we were both very close to her. Um, and yet there's a way in which... I, I'm not sure I actually really ever knew her because she was somebody that you wouldn't have asked. I didn't delve, I didn't ask, I didn't ask why she thought things. I, she just wasn't the sort of person you'd ever ask that to right. and she didn't volunteer it. So it's sort of, you know, I never sort of, I don't feel I ever really got under the skin or ever, ever really got under that surface. Um, so I'm not sure, as I said, I'm not sure I actually ever really knew her. Mm. Um, but she was a wonderful grandmother and I, and mm. I absolutely adored spending time with her. And so you talked there about having all the public events, whether that would be the Christmas carols, having drinks or... Yeah, the teas after the carol service. after, and the AGM for the Jane Austen Society. That must have been... I mean, maybe, as you said at the start, you grew up used to it, but that must have been slightly strange, having your house always been the host of the village events or even national events, I guess, if it was for the AGM of the Jane Austen Society at the time. Yes, and I, I suppose there's a way in which Chawton House was part home, part venue. Because as well as those events, there were other, I mean, every year there'd be other ad hoc things going on. You know, there'd mm. be a craft fair there one year or there'd be, you know, there'd be other things that sort of happened. Um, but I just enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed the activity. I enjoyed organising and getting ready for those sorts of events. And I loved it when the house was full of life and full of people and mm. the fate was fantastic because loads of kids would come. So that was always great fun. Um, and I loved the hosting um, and I loved joining in that part of what was going on. So um, it's something that, you know, it, I, I loved it. I absolutely enjoyed it. You welcomed um, it, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely enjoyed it very much. And it didn't stray into our private quarters. Mm. that's actually not strictly true our sitting room which is now the dining room what would be used that would be cleared and used for the horticultural show because they needed that and the great hall um 
but it's not as if you know what I mean it wasn't in our kitchen it wasn't in our bedroom it was you know I could still retreat um, um, and, and as I said it wasn't sort of in our private quarters um, mm. in that way um, and as I said I just I just used to love it I just loved the activity and 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 being involved in it all yeah I bet and you also had a tea room uh, during the summertime at the house as well which you used to help your granny in as well yeah what was that like as well? <laughs> having your own sort of job in your own house and having so many people, I'll ask in a little bit as well, about reactions um, to coming up and finding out that people actually live in Chawton House still and are related to Jane Austen. But how was that? It was, I mean, of course, yes, as you said, it was, and, and, and the, in a way it was obviously completely normal because it's all, it's what I knew. It had been going on before I was born um so granny having a tea room was something that as i said was very very normal to me in mm-hmm. that way um but it was also the environment where we were probably most exposed of course and talked most to jane austen appreciators mm-hmm. um and there were times i mean where where i mean as i got older so in my sort of teens i would waitress um you know front of house as it were in the great hall while granny would be in the kitchen you know obviously you know making food to order or whatever we were doing and sometimes I'd be really cheeky because people would say you know because they don't know that the person who's actually taking their order of course is actually a member of the family and related to Jane Austen mm. they don't know that at the first conversation <laughs> and people would occasionally say things like um in hushed tones they'd say are the Knight family in today <laughs> and you'd sort of grandly say yes we are <laughs> in a sort of you know <laughs> which they'd obviously always have this moment of you know which was a bit cheeky really um, and there were times I have to say there were also a couple of times when people got actually quite you know Jane Austen can evoke emotion in people of course mm. um and and I certainly as a child um had the experience of people bursting into tears um oh. people hugging me quite a lot um <laughs> that sort of thing um you know but all it's funny that that I mean that did used to happen I'm not saying it happened often I mean but that absolutely would have happened a, you know a good handful of times in, in my childhood <laughs> um but there was never I never ever ever felt in danger I never felt threatened by that um I mean thankfully you know the Jane Austen crowd in general are an extremely nice bunch of people Mm. um and I always knew why um I don't mean as a child I could actually emotion I I couldn't necessarily connect with what that emotion was about yeah but I knew that it was Jane Austen that was doing that Mm. um and I knew that nobody meant me any harm and I knew so I wasn't scared of that um but yes there were a few times where I was slightly caught off guard or as I said somebody would get quite emotional um (laughs) but that's the power of Jane Austen how would you react if someone just suddenly gave you a hug or burst into tears what would your reaction be well it (laughs) had Funnily enough, because I mean, obviously now, later, later in my life now, and now I sort of run the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation. Mm. Over the last sort of two or three years, I've I've probably spoken at you know done events probably seventy times, something like that. Right. And um, and it still happens today. So that there are still those occasions where after I've spoken, you know, people come and talk to me afterwards, and we'll have a good chat. And 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 it it does still happen that somebody will burst into tears. Um, <laughs> But when I talk to those people, I obviously completely appreciate that's not a reaction to me, as I said. And I under, of course it's not. It's a reaction mm. to Jane Austen. And of course, I think probably particularly over here in Australia, when I actually talk to those people, usually what their story is will, will you know, there's often a common theme that they were at some point in their life in a difficult situation so it might be that they were you know in their teens and their parents split up or somebody died or you know they were just in a a, you know a low point in their life and somehow in that moment a copy of Pride and Prejudice or or whatever you know whichever novel landed in their hand Um, and often that story you know that part of it will have that Aunt Jenny said to them read this it'll help or you know somebody suggested that you know an introducing to Jane Austen is often the sort of as I said the theme and Jane Austen for these for, for, for some people has you know in their moment of despair mm-hmm. reading Jane Austen's work was such a comfort to them 
that she has become somebody that they have such an emotional connection with. And so their reaction, as I said, is, is, is due to a, a very, very deep connection they feel yeah. with, a, with a woman who, you know, 200 years on, was still able to, you know, make a, a difference to them in that moment. And that's what they're reacting to. And I know that. Um, so, I'm, you know, what I tend to do is, is ask and listen and 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 let you know and ask and as i said let them tell me their story yeah um because that's you know that's often what people want to do and i'm extremely happy to listen oh that's great and what would you say is maybe the weirdest reaction do you have a memory of a particular weirdest reaction to ever happen or <laughs> <laughs> has it been any really bizarre thing on people learning that um, you're a, a descendant or lived at Chawton or so the <laughs> yeah but so yeah so 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 the probably the the common weird reactions are, are that, that that I sometimes get is occasionally as I said people burst into tears or they will be absolutely tongue tied and not be able to talk at all <laughs> which again is oh. not me it's just that in that you know that and, and again you've got to remember that over here in Australia people don't have a lot of ways to interact with Jane Austen. Mm. It's it's you know when you're in England, you can go to Jane Austen's house easily. You can go to a festival in 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 Chawton or Alton. Obviously, obviously, you know when COVID's not not an issue. Um, but you could also go to Bath. You know, there's lots of ways in England that you can have your own experience with Jane Austen. You can somehow feel connected to her. Mm. You can you can you know you can in England. Here in Australia, you can't. So for a lot of people, you know. Uh, so for anyone in Australia who is, you know, a lifelong absolute devotee of Jane Austen, as I said, and feels this deep personal connection to her, um, I might be the first time they've ever actually come in contact with something that's connected with Jane Austen. Mm, I see. Um, and therefore, I think that's partly why the reaction on this side of the world can actually be a little bit stronger, is because of that. So we're going to go back a bit, actually, back to sort of your, still related to your childhood and growing up in Chawton House. I wanted to ask as well, because in your book you mention, please correct me if I'm I'm mistaken, but you mentioned that you often regularly pass the portrait of Elizabeth Knight, the first female and only female squire of the Knight family of Chawton. And you mention how you feel really quite proud of her. Is that the right word? to see a female squire in the Knight family and she was part of your family and you'd passed her portrait every day. Yeah, her portrait was in our quarters, in my family's private quarters in the North Wing. So I couldn't get out of the front door without passing her. So absolutely, (laughs) I saw her multiple times a day. And I was, of course, incredibly proud to have, you know, to know that there had been a female squire of Chawton House. And not only had there been a female squire, but from, from... you know what I was told as a child. She was one of one of the most sort of successful squires in terms of the financial running of the estates and building the estates up, and and, and that's certainly my understanding of it. Said that she was very competent um, in in that task. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought the fact that her uh, one of her husbands was called Ballstrode Peachy. Um, that just I mean we I had hours and hours and hours and hours of laughter over that. I mean, that was just, that was just I mean, absolutely hilarious. So that used to make me laugh. Um, and yes, I was terribly proud of her. I think that I probably have mixed feelings about her now because I as. I have I have since discovered since we left Chawton and I've I've sort of done a little bit more academic research on on a few things. I've since discovered that of course she was the one that actually put the condition into her will that prevented any other woman of ever being squire of Chawton. Mm. And it obviously we're in a different time and yeah. I do not want to fall into that trap of of course you know judging things that have happened in the past by today's standards of course of course that's a dangerous thing to do but it just it just it just sends my mind into a spin to try and understand why she did that yeah um you know why she would have actually prevented another woman from 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 ever being squire um so that sort of 
as I said, probably gives me slightly mixed feelings now about her. And obviously there are some wonderful stories about Elizabeth of, of her insisting the church bells um, were, were rung on her return to Chawton um, oh, wow. from other estates. <laughs> um, so you sort of certainly, and her portrait is just so regal in its sort of style. It's extraordinary. Um, and Queen Anne, who was on the throne at the time, as I said, their portraits are almost identical. I mean, to the point where you think that can't, that can't just be coincidence or the style of the time. It's almost as if she said to the portrait painter, make me look like a queen. Um, and so that sort of, of course, makes you think of, of you know, a woman, a woman who obviously wanted to express her status. Mm. Um, but then I also think, but then we're talking about a different time and she would have been a relative rarity in terms of being a female squire. And you, of course, don't know how challenging that was. You don't know the battles that she had to fight to be taken seriously. You don't yes. know how she would have been considered amongst her peers. You know, the squire in the next village and the, um, you know, so, so again, it's very, very difficult, isn't it, to judge hundreds of years later yeah for sure you know somebody's behavior mm. and were there any other sort of family members that maybe stuck out to you on portraits I mean of course there was Jane Austen um in fact let's let's talk about Jane Austen how did you feel towards her being a descendant of yours did you know that she was such a well-known and glo globally appreciated writer from a young age or did that come later no, I knew right from the start. I there was no, I have no memory of finding out about all of that. Um, I mean, of course, with Jane's cottage in the middle of the village, um, again, you couldn't get, you couldn't get out of the village without going past her house. Mm. So I would have been, you know, right from the day I was born, seeing a property where obviously there were tourists, there were people, and I remember having conversations very, very early with Mum and her telling me about. Um, you know different aspects over time but telling me and trying to explain to me about Mr Darcy and why everybody thought he was so wonderful which is a very young child is difficult to understand why this you know proud and offish man is the hero um, but of course and I think I was yeah incredibly proud of her and I actually as a young child what I connected with with her and actually what I was told more about from my mum and gran and the family were more about you know her achievement and and this incredible determination she had and the fact that she even wrote in that period was was an achievement and how incredible her writing was and this amazing um, you know the way she's touched so many people and her legacy and we sort of talked about that more than her actual literature when I was a young child mm. um, yeah. so and and growing up with you know a female family member particularly when you're in I don't necessarily mean on, on a personal basis with the family, but of course, any any family like like mine, by definition, there is a patriarch, isn't there? I mean, it's it's all but one, a male squires. It's the squires that tend to be documented in history. You know, most of the books in the library were written by men or they were about men's journeys or they were, you know, it was quite a male sort of dominated atmosphere in that sort of mm -hmm. way. Um, as I said, I'm not, I'm not, you know, not necessarily within the culture of us as a private family, but that's certainly what history recorded so of course having a woman in amongst all that who had just achieved so much was an incredible role model and I remember you know from as young as I can remember I've I've never ever ever felt any disadvantage because I'm a woman at all yeah. and, and I mean that's just never been part of my mindset um, you know if Jane can do it I can do it yeah so she was inspirational to you then very now, I'm not, a, you know, I know I have written a book, of course, Jane and me, my Austin heritage about growing up in Chawton um, and, of course, my relationship, you know, this sort of thing. Um, but I wouldn't consider myself, you know, I'm not a great author. I'm not, a, you know, I had I wrote because I had a story to tell, not because yeah. I would, as I said, I, I don't have 10 books in me. Um, so, as I said, whilst, of course, Jane's work is absolutely incredible you know she hasn't I don't want to be a writer because of her and in actual fact how could I be I mean she's so fantastic it's sort of you know <laughs> the shoes are just way too big <laughs> so I think I'll just leave her as the family novelist you know? yeah <laughs> leave, leave, <laughs> leave well fair. alone there mm -hmm. um but I, as I said it's just more 
you know it's more that determination and and, yes. and i think her intelligence and her curiosity you know her intellectual curiosity and her wit and her you know she she was somebody that i just get such a sense of life from and that determination and and one of my favorite stories about jane has always been the uh, story of how emma ended up being dedicated to prince regent and she ended up in correspondence with reverend clark who was the prince regent's librarian right and they end up having some correspondence and the, the librarian reverend clark writes to her with a suggestion about what her next novel should be uh-huh. and suggests that it should be a romance and she writes back with just the most beautifully crafted um no <laughs> but in very well <laughs> you know very nicely crafted and it ends with and i'm, I'm sure i'm going to get the words slightly wrong now because i don't have it in front of me but it ends with I must go on in my own way because although I may not succeed in that, I shall certainly fail at any other. And to me, that, you know, I have to go on in my own way. And that, to me, just has always really encapsulated what I think the spirit of Jane Austen is. The fact Mm -hmm. that she, you know, she knew that that was what she, that was her talent. She knew that and she was determined and she did it. And and as I said, that's 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 some pretty powerful role modelling. Yeah, certainly. And were there any other family members, either through portraits or that you heard of through family tales, that particularly stood out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So the family members that were particularly um, notable to me were, were we'll just start with Sir Richard Knight, and really for a few reasons. First of all, he was the only Sir in the family, so that was you know notable. Mm-hmm. Um, his statue, a reclining statue of Sir Richard Knight, is in the back of the church of um, in Chawton, um, which is obviously on the right-hand side of the driveway as you go up to Chawton House. Um, and I used to, I mean, the church to me, I mean, it's it's in my mind as a kid that was just part of the front garden. I didn't sort of <laughs> see, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't. Yeah, I, I just considered that part of our garden, even though, of course, it does actually belong to the church. It's not, you know, it's not actually owned by the family. Um, and the church is actually somewhere that, again, as children, and when I say we played in the church, I mean, we wouldn't have moved anything or done any damage or anything mm-hmm. like that. But as we were, you know, roaming around the grounds, we used to pop into the church. Um, and I used to go in there sometimes, particularly on Christmas Eve. I'd pop down to the church before we had, because we had a very sort of traditional Christmas Eve um, uh, thing we used to do in the Great Hall, play Snapdragon. And there was a tradition of putting holly into Sir Richard's hand at Christmas, into the statue in the church, which still happens today. Um, So I'd go down and see Sir Richard and and, and have a bit of a chat with him. And as I said, to me, it was like he sort of, he sort of represented, I suppose. I suppose he was the representative of these great forefathers that had sort of come before us, mm. um, because he was there in three D, and that was, you know, he, he's the yeah. only one that there's actually a statue of. Um, but also his portrait, which is which is big and grand, and the sort of full length portrait of him, when we lived there, was actually on on sort of the first half landing of the main staircase, which basically means it overlooks the main hall the hall in the middle not the great hall at the front but there's a sort of where you've now got the bookshop Mm. um so he was sort of you know just up the stairs overlooking the inner hallway so it was also just a very sort of grand place and his and his um his portrait was very 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 noticeable and as said looked looked over us all so so richard was was important um Mm. to me as was and then after him came elizabeth uh martin knight who we've already spoken about and then of course jane and edward austin knight um, is of course another important character um, of course because he was the one that was I mean we say adopted he wasn't actually legally adopted he was the one that was adopted uh, by the Knight family um, and he's of course my fourth great grandfather so it is it is by virtue of him that I had the the privilege of growing up at Chawton. Awesome and with the long line of family living there did you ever come across any ghosts in the house or any tales of there being ghosts in Chawton House? Because surely, if, if people, for those who believe in ghosts, surely there's grand potential. So there is a long, there's a long documented, and I say long, long documented, I actually don't know how far back the Grey Lady, as we call her, goes. But I certainly know that the Bernardo's um, children that were uh, evacuated out of London, I think to the house, you know, obviously during during the war, 
Um, some of the Bernard, I, I know that in some of the Bernardo's girls, uh, I don't know, comments or, or letters or whatever, there's there's reference to the Grey Lady. So she was certainly, um, and my father certainly knows her from when he was a child. So so oh. she's you know a long-standing ghost, but I don't actually know how far you know whether she goes back centuries. Um, but she roams the, the exhibition rooms upstairs. Ooh. Now I've never ever seen a ghost at Chawton House myself. It is a house. Because there's also rumoured to be a poltergeist in the blue room. What's um, a poltergeist, sorry? Ch- a poltergeist is a ghost that moves things around. Oh, I see. Ooh. Now, it's the sort of thing that... I mean, Chawton House is, of course, a house of drafts. And or it certainly was when we lived there. Mm. Um, not in our private quarters, but in things like the tapestry gallery, you know, with... with you know, rattly lead-like windows and, as I said, drafts wh- whipping through and dark corners and shadows and, you know, yeah, it, w- it was quite easy to get spooked in the house mm. and there were absolutely bits of that house that I wouldn't have gone into on my own at night, absolutely. Um, and not necessarily because I believe that there was a ghost in there, but just because I knew my 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 potential for getting scared in there was high. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just knew I'd freak myself out, so Certainly. I didn't, I, you know, so I would just, I just wouldn't do it. Um, and there were certainly, I knew that something had happened one year. My mother's actually, my mum grew up here in Australia. So my grandparents, um, who are both, both both deceased now, but they were both here in Australia when I was a child. And my grandfather, Alf, as we used to call him, used to come and visit every, every few years in England. And he was, I mean, to me, Alf was like Crocodile Dundee. He really was. He was, he was a country Aussie, you know, who used to wander off for, for weeks on end in the in the outback with his camper van and, and and as I said he was just this adventurer to me as a child that's what he was and Alf actually stayed because the exhibition rooms were bedrooms at that time he actually stayed in one of those bedrooms and something happened in one of those bedrooms which is where the grey lady is and um and Alf refused to sleep in there anymore and oh. I now know that he sort of said to my my mum oh there's a there, there must be a bird or something in the chimney that's disturbing me um I think because he obviously didn't want to actually say that he was scared <laughs> but some you know but but something had unsettled him in that room and he wouldn't sleep in there anymore but you've got to remember obviously at the time I was a kid and my parents didn't want to make me scared of the house I lived in yes definitely. so I didn't know the details of that story until I was you know probably until five years ago because as a kid, as I said, they wouldn't have wanted to tell me that. I mean, it's that you know that they obviously would would try and yes, not to um, um, worry me. So I didn't actually know. I knew something had happened at the time, but I wasn't really, um, as I said, told all the details. So, mm. uh, but I've also heard rumours along the way. I think of an aunt who who might have seen the grey lady. Um, but as I said, it was something that as a family, not a lot was made of it. And as I said, I think that was because they didn't really want to scare all the children that yes, lived in the house. Yes, that's fair enough. Ooh, yeah, I'd be, I would be terrified if anyone told me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I would never sleep. Cool. Just one last question about your childhood and then we'll move on. I think I recall you talking before about Snapdragon. Could you briefly explain to us what Snapdragon was yeah. and your sort of tradition on Christmas Eve? So Snapdragon is a an old English parlour game, which is actually actually dates back to the 16th century, I think. Um, and it is um, something that Fanny Knight wrote about. Fanny Austin, who obviously became Fanny Knight when, when Edward changed, changed the name of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote in a diary, I think in 1806, about playing Snapdragon, that the fact that they'd, they'd played Snapdragon. And throughout my entire childhood, and it had been going on for a long time, every Christmas Eve, that's what we did. We played Snapdragon in the Great Hall. Um, I have tried to sort of find out, but I but I, I haven't been successful in terms of how long this tradition had been going on. I actually don't know. Um, but Snapdragon um, is a, a game where this is certainly how we used to do it in the inner hallway in the house. There used to be huge pewter plates, pewter charges as you call them, that used to sit on the top of the panelling and one of those charges would be taken down and from my memory it used to be warmed by the fire in the Great Hall for a little while and then we would all gather the whole family that lived in the house and we also of course had other family members I mean my my parents and my father and Richard have other siblings so we had other aunts and uncles and cousins that um that 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 often would come for snapdragon so we'd all congregate in the Great Hall you know for mince pies and mild wine and Mm. exactly what you'd sort of expect on Christmas Eve it's sort of, you know, six, seven o'clock, something like that. And then at, you know, half an hour in, in, into it or whatever, when the time was right, Granny would sort of um, come in with a, 
computer charger would be put on a table in the middle of the room. It would be absolutely piled high with currants. I'm pretty sure there were mm. currants, not raisins. Currants or raisins. And she'd then get a jug of warm brandy and pour the brandy all over the, the currants and then light it. And the lights on the in the room would be switched off. And what actually happens is you just get this roar of blue sort of flame goes up and it's it's and it burns and you've sort of you know you've got a fire in the middle of the table but it's all blue flame because it's alcohol burning mm. and what you actually have to do is put your hands into the fire and grab the raisins Ooh. and then you eat them and if you do it quick enough it literally looks like everybody's eating fire and of course in the flicker of the flame everybody's faces look ghoulish and it's all you know it's one of those things that and now of course it actually probably only lasts you know i've got no idea a minute you know it doesn't actually right. last very long until it goes out um but it burns for quite a while because there's so much on this on this on this charger and if you do it quick enough you don't burn yourself at all i mean it, it literally as i said this isn't actually that hot it's just alcohol burning off but of course as a kid as i say it's just a spectacular sort of moment and the whole thing as i said probably only lasts a minute but we'd be looking forward to it all december it would be the most exciting oh. thing of december was that we were going to get to play snapdragon Wow, that really sounds quite magical, I guess. Very special sort uh, of absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely, absolutely. And then obviously in a more modern uh, twist um, to the occasion, we then, after that, and you know, after another glass of mulled wine or Ribena for the kids, um, <laughs> you'd hear the sleigh bells and, you know, obviously somebody's shaking the bells. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Santa would turn up with a sack and give all us kids a present which was lovely oh that sounds lovely it was magical absolutely i mean absolutely absolutely my memories of it which of course i'm sure that that you know i'm sure there's a little dollop of nostalgia but my memories of it are absolutely what you can imagine i mean just just magical time mm. particularly if it snowed Jordan House in the snow i mean that long long run of lawn that, that actually starts i mean really up at the wall garden but, you know, from there, um, or certainly from the upper, upper wall terrace, I don't know, what, you know, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean, there's an upper yeah. walk, isn't there, at the top of the lawns? Well, from there, you can get a good toboggan run. There's a long oh, wow. toboggan <laughs> run down the lawns of Chawton. And it is, I mean, it was just absolute, uh, absolute heaven. If we, had, if we had a white Christmas, we were just in heaven, heaven. Mm. It was fantastic. Fantastic place to grow up. I can only imagine yeah. what it must be yeah, like. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we better move on then. What made you leave the house? Why did you have to leave the day before your 18th birthday? So my family didn't actually leave, I have to say, until a little bit after that. Okay. Um, so Vapots died when I was 17. And my parents had always been very honest with me. Not that we talked about it often, but they were always very honest about the fact that the... You know, whilst of course we still had Chawton House, it needed work doing to it. I, I as a child couldn't see that. Um, I mean, the bits of the house that we lived in were, were fantastic and, 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 and very, you know, yeah, they didn't seem, I, I didn't sort of see that, you know, as I said, how much money was needed on the place. I, so I knew that and I knew they'd been very honest that when Bapops died, that would be a, a, a moment of massive change and that the chances were given that the amount of money that was needed to be spent and the fact that there wasn't a, you know, a fortune to go with it, that the chances were that would be the end of mm. it being the Knight family home. Now, of course, on top of that, it was also to be inherited by Richard, who's my uncle, not my father. Um, and Richard, of course, even if he had been able to hold on to it, um, you know, it would have been Richard's home and not ours. But that, funnily enough, that actually wouldn't have, that in itself would have been, the, to, in my mind, the natural order of things, you know, that of course it would pass on to Richard. And I think as a kid, I kidded myself that of course, if Richard kept the house, then of course he'd need tenants just the same as Bapops had, and therefore would be able to carry on living there. So. As I said, my parents were always very honest about the fact that the finances were gone and when Bapops died, 
something drastic was going to have to change. Um, but I very much didn't want to believe that. And it was also very difficult to believe when we own everything I can see. And that that's, it, it's difficult to understand, obviously, as a child, when you've got no understanding at all of how finances work, yeah. really. You know, it, it was really hard to get my head around why we couldn't stay, you know, why the family wouldn't be able to stay. Yeah, so that, but that's the reason why we mm. ran out of money. And, of course, Richard inherited Okay. Do you remember how you felt when you first left Chawton? Where did you go first? So I, I, I mean, I loved living at Chawton House so much. I really, I just loved it. I loved, I loved being part of this extended family and part of the events and part of the, you know, the constant sort of activity and, and, and being part of, it's just somewhere that was just so safe and secure and, and, and always something new going on and, and incredible places to, to play and explore and all of that, that I really, really didn't want to go. I did not want to leave Chawton. I would have, I would have certainly at that stage, you know, wanted to stay there forever, I suppose. Mm. Um, but that of course wasn't possible. I didn't want to be there on the last day. The thought to me at that time, and I was, what, 17, the thought to me of actually, you know, watching the removal trucks leave, watching Granny leave, watching all of that, was just more than I could, more than I could bear. Um, and I didn't, in all of that, I mean, it was nobody's fault that was happening. You know, that's the situation that my grandfather left. That was, you know, there was no money. There was no choice in this situation. That I know that everybody did the best they could with what was going on but I just couldn't stand it couldn't stand to be there and watch it so mm. I actually got myself a, a nanny job because that a because I absolutely you know love children and and was good at it but also because it was you know nanny jobs obviously come with accommodation and so that was you know I guess a, a safe and and relatively easy way out yeah. Um, so I actually left and moved in with my nanny job a couple of months before my parents left, I think. Okay. So actually, which now I look back and think, gosh, how jolly selfish of me, really, that I didn't, you know, because I left a few months beforehand, I didn't actually help at all pack up the house. <laughs> I had absolutely nothing to do with that, um, which, as I said, I look back now and think, you know, that was terrible, really, that I just left my parents to just deal with all of that and didn't get involved. But at the time, it was just, as I said, it was just more than I, it was more than I could bear in that moment. Yeah, I'm sure they understand. Yeah, absolutely. And ways. I think, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that I don't think any of us, we all knew why it was happening. There was no, I don't think any of us felt hard done by, particularly by the situation of, of you know, it wasn't unfair. It was what had to happen. Yeah. Um, but for every single person that lived in that house and of course for Richard's family you know my grandfather dying was a phenomenally significant thing for our family for every single one of us our lives changed dramatically so I think I think all of us in own in our own ways in different ways would have been having to cope with that yeah and so then today would you say that Chawton and your childhood growing up in Chawton House has remained a strong part of your identity. Yes. So I left just before my 18th birthday. <laughs> and I actually, you know, left the area. And I did go back briefly and actually lived in another house in Chawton briefly oh, when right. I was about 22, 23, that sort of age. Okay. But I, after I left Chawton, it took me a long time to settle after that to be able to sort of settle anywhere and I I mean of course my close friends would have known about Chawton because they would have known me when I was there but it was something that I I just didn't talk about with people I didn't talk about with new people I didn't you know all of the friends I made as an adult didn't know anything about Chawton it's not something I wanted to talk about I didn't talk about Jane Austen because it was just something that I I hadn't it, it just it just wasn't something I wanted to talk about and to me it was just loss and it was just something that, that felt uncomfortable. So I actually didn't tell anybody about Chawton for about 20, 20 years, I think. 
and didn't mention Jane Austen. Just didn't talk about the fact that, of course, I've got this this phenomenal heritage and that I grew up in a in, in a house like like Chawton House. Um, but it is one of those things that, and I think it's you know as you get older and and it is one of those things that as much as I think I probably tried to push it away and ignore it and just sort of think you know that'll just go away one day as I got into my 40s I I had to come to the realization that that wasn't true right. and that actually I both had to do two things heal myself and grieve for it and get over it and move on and actually just sort of you know ignoring it and putting it in a box and hoping it would gonna go away wasn't working um, and I also knew that you know denying that part of my history and never talking about and having no connection was actually not making me happy that wasn't actually doing me any good at all and that's when I decided that I needed to change things and I was what 43 at that point and and just thought at this uh, you know as I said that I just had to you know it was something that still bothered me a lot I still felt the loss of Chawton very heavily and everyone else had moved on, you know, and Chawton House is now a public building. It's been enjoyed by, you know, thousands of people around the world. I've got to fix this. And I also appreciated at that time that there was, you know, both an opportunity to for the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation, which is sort of what I started out of all of this. But also um, I also realised eventually that, of course, you know, the, the Jane Austen story, the interest in all things to do with Jane Austen and, and Chawton House is just a historical house with this sort of 17 generation story of the Knight family. And it hasn't really been, you know, certainly as a book, it, the last person of the family that did a book was Montague, um, right at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the sort of the final years of Chawton weren't really sort of documented or talked about or or they weren't anywhere. And I just became very aware that I for what it's worth I have a first-hand knowledge and experience I have memories I have and I just thought that that was worth putting down in the record book as it were Mm. is that when you wrote your book on about yeah so that exactly so that's when I decided to write the book Mm -hmm. which was for two reasons first of all it was cathartic for me and I really needed to do that I needed to yeah figure some stuff out and work it through and and I mean as I said you know I left when I was still a kid really um Mm -hmm. so had a lot of things I hadn't sort of um said you know made peace with but it was also as I said just this sense of the story needs to be finished about what what happened to our family at Chawton I just Mm -hmm. felt it needed to be finished and whilst of course mine is one view one perception and I mean that because of course everybody's different I was a child there were of course other people that would have had that were adults that would have known completely different things from me and would have a probably quite a different perspective on this from me um but you know I can at least or I could at least document my experience of it yeah um which as I said just just felt like something that was worth doing definitely so can you tell me a little bit more about the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation yeah so the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation is a charity that I set up in 2014 and we are literally a network of volunteers so totally volunteers which means that all of the money that we raise can be spent on literacy projects so we raise money through doing various online events real life events um, all sorts of different activities and things that as I said raise money and we primarily at the moment are funding um, literacy in India so in Delhi Um, We've also funded projects in Syria and in Ghana and here in remote indigenous communities here in Australia. And it's quite a simple model. What we do is quite straightforward, but we have heaps and heaps of fun doing it. And as I said, we we really are making a difference to uh, to literacy, um, which for me just felt like, for me, the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation, I just thought if Jane is obviously so incredibly popular now, it would be an amazing thing to do to be able to turn that into something. I mean, of course, Jane already has a phenomenal influence on the world. She doesn't need any help from me. I'm not suggesting that. But wouldn't it be fantastic if I can build on that legacy to actually make that sort of difference to to the lives of children? Um, And with the way the world is, with or without COVID, Literacy, I absolutely believe, is one of the absolute key ways that communities and countries can develop and and that us as people can develop and as nations can develop. Um, And as I said, I I just thought that there was an opportunity 
to work with the Jane Austen community to do that. And that's what we're doing. Fantastic. When did you set that up? 2014. Right. Yeah, we're just coming up to our sixth birthday. Now, I say 2014. I mean, the first couple of years, it takes that long to actually get set up as, as a charity. Mm. Um, you, know, there's a, you know, there's a lot that sort of goes into all the setup and things. So, so I mean, really, things properly sort of got off the ground um, with the publication of my book in 2017, which, because that led to... Uh, I'd already set the foundation up, but the publication of my book led to so much public speaking and so much uh, media that that really sort of got the foundation, you know, yeah. off the ground. To go sort of hand in hand. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And finally then, what are your feelings towards Chawton House today? So I understand it was difficult for you going back before you, probably before you wrote your book. Yeah, absolutely. In the last couple of years, I mean, I wasn't for a very, very long time and certainly for 20 years... I think I probably visit. I probably went to the house twice, and it would have been because I had to. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, there was a family event there that I really had to go to. Um, but other than that, I didn't come anywhere near the house, and I didn't certainly for a very long time. Just didn't want to see it. I didn't want to see other people running the house. That at that time was a, a difficult thing to get my head around. Um, now, so what I've done in the last few years, though, since I've launched the Jane Austen Literacy Foundation is I've actually been coming over to the UK about three times a year um, for various foundation work, various, um, you know, Austen events that, that I've been doing. And that's been great. And over, you know, over a couple of years, um, just I think by visiting the house often, and I have to say, I think the team at the house are absolutely fantastic. I mean, it really is such a nice bunch of people. Um, and also, of course, as the house, I mean, the house has been doing so well um, particularly, you know, over the last sort of couple of years. And I just think that, you know, it's good to know it's in safe hands. It's being so well looked after, the house, the grounds, but also, you know, all the events that go on and all the initiatives that I've got very, very comfortable with it now. And it's it's a pleasure to see it so well looked after. It's a pleasure now that so many people enjoy Chawton mm. and so many people, you know, I think I've, I think I've got to the point now where I'm not quite so bothered, if that's the right yeah. word, by other people <laughs> being in Chawton. Um, I think I am sort of at the point now where it's actually, you know, I'm back at the point now of feeling very, very proud, actually, of of the fact that Chawton House is, is in such a wonderful condition and being so well run and it's said so many people get to enjoy it. That That's great. That's great. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Quite a journey. And thank you so much, Caroline, for sharing your stories with us i'm sure the listeners will have really enjoyed this episode it's really special to be able to hear what it's like actually living in the house so thank you very much for your time absolute pleasure absolute pleasure how truly fascinating that was i hope you enjoyed hearing caroline j knight there as much as i did a massive thank you to caroline for sharing her stories with us i honestly feel as though we could have kept chatting for hours copies of her book are of course available and you can find out more about the jane austen literacy foundation online i look forward to sharing further episodes of the chawton house podcast with you very soon and as always you can head on over to the chawton house website and social media pages to keep updated on the house thank you very much for listening and finally, thank you for the music. The theme music is Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square. And in this episode, we used the Parting Glass instrumental by Orson's At Itter featuring Dax and Sigmund and Little Candle by Stefan Karenberg featuring Admiral Bob, all found on ccmixter.org.